Do I need to switch the handheld, guys? Are we good? Okay, cool. I'm just going to keep going on, and, uh, and we'll be all right. All right, so, um, you know, Life of David, and I, I want to just do super brief flyover before we jump into chapter 24. And uh, here, here's a couple things um, that were interesting to me as I was preparing and studying. Number one, and I don't think I knew this, but First and Second Samuel, do I need to switch or just? Oh, I was just asking if I needed to switch. I'm good. Thanks, Bryson. Everybody give it up, Bryson. He loves attention. Not really. Um, <laughs> um, but First and Second Samuel originally were one book. Uh, it was only divided when it was translated into Greek, but when it was originally written in Hebrew, these are one book, and, and they're focused on three main characters. They're focused on Samuel. He's the guy we start with in this book. Then it moves on to King Saul, and then finally ends with the life of David. And, and just kind of the trajectory of what's going on, Samuel is a really good, so a judge of the people. But his sons uh, didn't walk in his ways. And so you, you, get, this, uh, you get this bit of information in, in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. They were pretty bad sons. And he says, Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And one of the themes that you'll see in this book, if you read it, uh, and I would encourage you, this is absolutely easy portions of the Bible to read. So if you've never read through 1 and 2 Samuel and you don't have some other reading plan going on, man, I would just say dive into 1 and 2 Samuel here over the next couple months read this on your own, you'll, you'll see all sorts of details and themes that we're just not able to go into on a Sunday morning, but it's amazing. Um, but, uh, but one of the themes is, is that God, didn't, God was the king of Israel, and they weren't supposed to ask for another king. But nevertheless, when the people cried out, he says, well, God says, well, give them, give them what they want. And so you, you hear this later on in, in chapter 8, you know, the people say, no, but there shall be a king over us. Samuel's going, you don't want a king. They're like, no, no, we want a king. And, and why? And they say, because we want to be like all that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles, as if God wasn't already doing that. But God says, okay. Then I'm going to give you a king after your own heart. And so the first king of Israel was Saul, and he was a king after the people's own heart. I mean, you just listen to the description. It says, when, when he stood among the people, he was taller than all of them from their shoulders upward. He, was a, he, he looked like a king. He looked, all looked like he fit the part. And the people rejoiced. And, and initially, he started off as a, a, a good warrior. He was fighting the Philistines, and, and Israel was having victory in battle. But very quickly, he decided to start doing things his own way, and he turned away from following God. He offered a sacrifice he was not authorized to offer. And then God told him to go out and battle the Amalekites, and he did not follow God's instructions in regard to that battle. And after that happened, this is what the Word says in 1 Samuel 13. And 1 Samuel 13, verse 13, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not 
kept the command of the Lord your God for which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And of course that man was David. And the tension in the text is this. Though God has rejected Saul from being king, and though he has anointed David to be the next king, God, for whatever reason, in his sovereignty and providence, has not immediately removed Saul from being king. And so Saul is still the king, but he's been rejected by God, and David has been anointed to be the next king, but David is not yet the next king. And we see Saul's jealousy grow, and his anger grow, and he begins to try to kill David. And so we're in the middle of one of those stories this morning. So 1 Samuel 24, and we're just going to read the whole chapter together. It's a very interesting chapter. And so if you're there, let's read with together. Read with together. That was good English. Read together. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After a dead dog? After a flea? 
May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul says, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. And that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men went up from the stronghold. It's an amazing, amazing story. And what I want to talk to you today about is how we deal with injustice. David was anything Saul's enemy, right? David was Saul's son-in-law. David was Saul's son's best friend. David was a mighty warrior for Saul. David had played music for Saul. He had never once done anything to try to take the kingdom away from Saul. None of that was David's doing. He in no way was against Saul. In fact, you could argue, if you just kind of think about it, that Saul would already be dead or enslaved if it were not for David. Because you remember at the story of David and Goliath, Goliath came out and he said, look, I'm, I'm the Philistines champion. You send me one of your champions. Instead of all of us fighting, we too will just fight. And whoever, which one of us wins, the other group will become, you know, their servants. And it sure looked like Goliath was going to be the champion and was going to win. And if he had, Saul might have already been killed in battle or be serving one of the kings of the Philistines. But David, by listening to the Lord, being empowered by the Lord, had rescued the people of Israel from Goliath's hands, from the Philistines' hands. I mean, David was Saul's, like, number one guy. And here it is, Saul has let jealousy build up, and he's treating David total. And so I want to talk about how do we deal with injustice. And I want to pull out a few principles from this passage for us to think over. I was watching uh, Clear and Present Danger the other night with my wife. And great, great movie if you've not seen I Love Harrison Ford. But there's this moment, if you remember in that movie, where Harrison Ford's character, Jack Ryan, he he uncovers that there's this big conspiratorial plot amongst members of the government and in the CIA, and they're saying one thing, but they're doing another, and it's illegal. And there's this tense moment where Ryan realizes it's this other guy, Cutter, who, like, works, like, just down the hall from him. He's the guy doing the illegal stuff. And they both realize at the same time that Ryan knows and Cutter knows that Ryan knows, and there's this huge moment of drama where they're meeting, and they're yelling at each other, and they're, he's holding up, he's like, you see what you did, you know? And it's this, it's just this tense moment. And I don't know about you, I have like this fierce sense of like, 
if you know me very well, you know I rant. And, and this like, when there's injustice, I'm just like, ah! You know, I'm sitting there watching. I'm so fired. I've just been watching for 10 minutes. Megan's been watching the whole thing. I just joined in, saw the scene, got fired up. I'm like, if, if I was in that, I would beat the guy to a pulp. I mean, I'm just, ah! How, how do we deal with injustice? I, I mean, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation at work or at school with a boss where you're not being treated fairly? In fact, if the full truth was known, that other guy is a dirtbag. And it seems as if he's going to get away with it. And there's complete and total injustice. How does God want us to respond? I want to look at four things in the text. I want to look at God's providence. I want to look at David's temptation. I want to look at God's eternal justice. And I want to look at David's mercy. Okay? Quickly. The first is God's providence. And now if you actually look back in chapter 23, you'll see that right before Saul came to hunt for David in the cave, he was hunting for David before then, and he was about to catch David. And he's about to catch David, the text says that he got a report back from Israel that the Philistines were invading and so he, he was, the text is he was literally about to get him. Like David was on one side of the mountain, Saul was on the other. Saul's about to get him. And right as he's about to get him, he gets called away and he has to run back to Israel. And he has to defend against the Philistines. And then when we get to chapter 24, Saul again starts the fight again and comes back to chase David again. And that's when David actually has him in the cave. And if you read this story in just every little detail... Every single time Saul's about to get David, David evades the spear. Or, or, or a, a prophet just out of nowhere goes, hey, Saul's on the way. You know, or something always happens to free David, and David always gets away. And it seems very clearly, if you read the text, that God is clearly against Saul and clearly for David. And that God in this situation is orchestrating every little single event. God is in control, even though it probably doesn't feel like it to David. Providence is what we call that. Now, here's how the Belgic Confession of 1561, you don't have to know about it, good confession, but here's how it defines it. Listen to this. We believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way, listen to this, that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. God is completely sovereign and completely providential over every little thing in life. And Jesus teaches us this clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, sparrows aren't worth that much, are they? Two of them are sold for a penny. But listen, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. 
even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Every detail. And then he goes further for that and for his people. He says in Romans 8, 28, we love this verse. He says, and we know that for those who love God, so that's the stipulation, those who love God, and there's a second one, and those who are called according to his purpose. So it's describing Christians. So for Christians, followers of Jesus, all things work together for good for those who love God. And so in the midst of injustice, deep injustice, and there's all different kinds, right? From a boss at work to maybe a horrible parent to Jim Crow in the South. Injustice. People don't deserve this. They're not being treated unfairly. In the midst of our injustice, what's one thing we can do? First of all, we can know that God is providential over the situation and that nothing is happening outside of what he has deemed to happen. And if we're his kids, in some way, it's working out for our good, even if we happened, right? Or how that works. Faith go, God's in control. Secondly, I want you to see David's temptation. So he's there in the parts of the cave, and Saul's in there using the bathroom. And he is completely unaware that David and his men, he came out with 3,000 men against David. That's a lot more than David's got. And here he is right in David's hand. And his men are like, This is your chance. So what would you do? I mean, not only is your life in danger, all your men's life are in danger. And it sure seems like God has delivered Saul into your hand. So he sneaks up. And he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. And I don't know if he's contemplating killing Saul. My guess is yes. But the text says, even when he just stealthily cut off the corner of his robe, verse 5 says, and afterwards David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him. Because he's the Lord's anointed. What does that mean? That, that perplexes me. But, but Tim Keller's helped me a little bit. And here's what he said about the Lord's anointed. What does that mean? He says, the anointed ones were people that God anointed. Prophets, he anointed priests, he anointed kings. And they were supposed to save the people and serve the people. The anointing gave them a special dignity. And what David is saying is, Saul, Saul in himself, he does deserve to die. He's not worthy in and of himself. But because he's the Lord's anointed, as someone that the Lord has touched, he has to be treated with a sacred dignity, and I will not lay a hand on him. That's David's theological reasoning. I can't do this. Here's here's what I would also just add. David just somehow knew. And I would say that's the Holy Spirit. He knew in the midst of the situation, it is not right for me to kill and murder Saul. Now here's the truth. When injustice is being done to us, 
we are so likely to give ourselves a little bit more slack. We are so tempted to just maybe commit that sin that we wouldn't normally commit because we're kind of giving ourselves some extra grace and going, I've been being treated like this and I don't deserve this, so this doesn't really matter. Or look what they did to me. I can do that back to them. And David's temptation for a second here is not to act honorably in the way that God would have him act. But thankfully, he holds back. And so here's point number two. In the middle of injustice, we are extra tempted to sin, I would argue. And that's the moment when we need to be extra on guard and extra asking God for power. We need to, we need to study our hearts well and know what's going on. And we need to flee from temptation and get away from it. This may be part of 12-step, I don't know, I've not been through that, but, but a friend of mine, Gary Morgan, who's preached here, said that there's this acronym that he's used with some of the guys he's discipled over the years. It's HALT, H-A-L-T, and it stands for this, when we are hungry or angry or lonely or tired, HALT, that's when we're extra prone to temptation. That accords with my experience as well. So David was tempted, but James 4.17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's a sin. David knew in that situation it was the wrong thing for him to kill Saul, and so he didn't do it. It would have been sin. Here's what Tim Keller says, and this, this one right here. He said, David, by forgiving Saul, and not taking vengeance on Saul, has made sure he's not going to become Saul. If David had killed Saul in vengeance, if David had let his anger go, if David had let himself get to the place where he was as self-pitying and as self-absorbed and as self-righteous and therefore as capable as Saul had become, by killing Saul, he would have put another Saul on the throne. And Keller goes on to add, and the fact of the matter is, if, if you don't, and if I don't, if we don't forgive people, we in some way or another become like them. Here's number three. God's future justice. Look at the appeals that David makes in this passage when he confronts Saul. He says two different things. In verse 12, he says, He says, Saul, I didn't kill you. Quit listening to your men. I'm not taking the the throne by force. That's God's doing. I have nothing to do with it. And then he says, verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And then in verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So God just, uh, David just says, I'm going to let God deal with it. I'm not going to be the one that does anything in this situation. In other words, as the Bible says in multiple places, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You don't worry about vengeance. We don't worry about vengeance. God will repay. God sets everything to right. That's one of the central themes of the Bible. When God 
proclaims who he is in front of Moses. He says, he says, the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. Uh, listen to how he describes himself. A merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is both perfectly loving and perfectly just. Somehow he's able to do that, to be completely and totally 100% loving and completely and totally 100% just. His justice never violates his love and his love never violates his justice. He always does what is right. And when you and I are treated unfairly, we can let it go in God's power and go, God's going to make it right. I don't have to avenge myself in this situation because God knows completely what's going on. And because he's the only one that completely knows what's going on, he's the only one that can judge 100% rightly and who will absolutely take out his vengeance perfectly. And I don't have to worry. I can just be freed up. I mean, what's going on on the cross if not the marriage, the perfect marriage of God's love and justice, right? Because on the cross, what is God doing? Je- Jesus is, is not simply a revolutionary that was, he spoke up too much or he made some weird statements about the temple or because the other people were jealous of his power. No, like he is intentionally, according to Isaiah 53, he's intentionally, God says, uh, I was willing to bruise my son. He's intentionally going and paying a debt. Putting himself for you and I and he's paying a debt. And God's justice towards sin is being placed on Jesus rather than on us because the debt still has to be paid and so if God is going to be gracious and merciful to you and I and not make us pay the debt somebody else had to be paid the debt it's not like God just says vamoosh the debt's gone he says no somebody else is going to have to pay the debt and here's who's going to have to pay the debt me I'm going to put myself on the cross and I'm going to suffer your debt Because the debt still has to be paid. Because I will be just. I will always do rightly. I was rewatching that scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is picturing the cross where Edmund is guilty of being a traitor, and the white witch is saying, You know that all the traitors, I get the traitors. And if you don't give me the traitors, remember the deep magic, Aslan. It will rip this world apart if there is not justice. And he says in the movie, not quite in the book, but he goes, he goes, don't you tell me about the deep magic which I was there when it was written. And then he dies for Edmund. That's how guilty people get grace. And so when you and I are in the midst of injustice, in a way we are just as guilty. Maybe not of the same crimes, but of other crimes. And we too don't deserve grace. God gives us grace, even though we don't deserve it. And so we don't have to avenge ourselves. We don't have to worry about making it all right right now. 
we can trust that there is a God who will make it right one day. Perfectly right. Revelation 20 says, it talks about the judgment. And it says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. God will judge, and God will set things back right. Listen to this amazing quote from a guy named Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian theologian. And he says, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by us is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. And then he says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular to many. So Volf says, my thesis is for us to be nonviolent, we have to believe that God is violent, but perfectly violent. And he says, and I know that's not going to be popular with many, especially people in the West. But here's what he says. He says, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from a belief in God's refusal to judge. He says, it takes a perfect little suburb for you to believe something that foolish. He goes, but where I come from, in the sun-scorched land of Croatia, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it, that idea invariably dies with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. I don't have to get violent because I'm trusting that I can't do it well and I'll do it unfairly. But I know there's a perfect God who is loving and just, and he will get violent if he needs to, when the time is right, perfectly. And that's how I can be nonviolent, because I believe in that God. The final thing that I want you to see is David's mercy. And David doesn't just not give Saul what he deserves. He gives him more than that. Saul cries out, and he essentially, it seems like, repents. And he says, David, is that you? And he weeps. And he says, I've been unjust, and you've been just. And now I know that you're going to be king. And so when you're king, please don't cut off my family. That was the practice in those days. New king takes over. He's not part of your family. You kill all the, old, the, king, the other king's relatives. All of them. So none of them can be pretenders to your throne. And Saul goes, David, please don't do that to me. And David goes, I won't. And remember, he said, I'm, I'm a worm. I'm a flea. David judged himself rightly. He knew that he too was a sinner who had been given grace. And he said, Saul, 
I will not give you what you deserve. And he did that, we'll see later in the book, to Mephibosheth, one of Saul's relatives. He doesn't kill him. He brings him to the king's table. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does to us. We're his enemies, and he brings us to his table. And so here's how Paul says in the New Testament how we should treat those who are treating us unjustly. In Romans 12, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The only way for us to do that. And and that is Christianity, folks. The only way for us to do that is to remember that we too are sinners who have been given radical grace because of Jesus. And then take on the power of the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, I don't, I'm so angry right now. I'm so hurt right now. I don't know how this guy gets away with it. I don't know, I don't know why this is happening to me. And I, I, I just want to destroy him. But you said to love my enemies. And so Holy Spirit, will you empower me? Will you help me to do what Jesus did? In your power. Let's pray together. To be these sorts of people. I mean. We live in a world filled with injustice. We live in a world not made right yet. And you call us to be salt and light people. And part of being salt and light people. Is being people who recognize our radical sinfulness, your radical forgiveness of our sinfulness, and how because we've been forgiven much, we should forgive much. And trust that you make things right. And I pray at 24 Church, us to be those sorts of people. And God, today, if the gospel is maybe just making sense for the first time to somebody today, and they're going, oh my gosh, Jesus took my place. I can be forgiven. I pray, Father, that you would help them to have faith for the very first time and to trust in you. Save us, God, and keep saving us. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.